Hello and welcome to another Folklore Podcast special feature. This is the third of the three interviews that I recorded at the UK Ghost Story Festival in Derby earlier in the year. In this one, I chat with author Lauren McMenemy, who was also one of the assistants helping to organise aspects of the Ghost Story Festival. Enjoy the chat. So here we are with another UK Ghost Story Festival folklore podcast special featurette. Mm-hmm. I just made that up. It That's sounds great. good. It's wonderful. Joining me this time is the lovely Lauren McMenemy. Mm-hmm. Hello. 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 What is your involvement with the UK Ghost Story Festival? So with this festival, I have been helping out behind the scenes a little bit. Uh, when Alex said that he was putting this on again... I wanted to be involved. I was uh, a attendant, attendee at the last one that he did here in Derby just over a year ago. Absolutely loved it. And it was part of my reintroduction to the world post-COVID. Yes. Really, actually my first writing event as well as, as a writer. Excellent. Uh, so I said, I loved it. I want to be involved. So tell me a little bit about your background then leading you up to wanting to be involved with this and your writing. What is your background and how does your writing fit into that? And who the hell am I? Yes, that's the kind of <laughs> <laughs> Sure. So uh, my name is Lauren McMenemy. Uh, I am a, a writer of gothic and folk horror. I'm also the editor of HorrorTree.com's Trembling with Fear, which is a weekly zine where we publish short stories and drabbles, which are stories of exactly 100 words very much leaning into the, the darkness of speculative fiction there. Um, I have always wanted to be a writer. I was that kid who was writing books and drawing my own covers and thrusting them into the hands of visitors. Uh, but I was encouraged quite young to think of that as a hobby uh, because it would never make me money, it would mm. never, never be a way to make a living. So I ended up going into journalism uh, and I was a journalist back home in Adelaide, South Australia. Um, for seven years working for Mr Murdoch's empire because he owns everything over there Um, and I can tell you the succession is pretty much a documentary uh, with the names changed Uh, but so I was a I was a journalist and then I moved over to the UK in the mid-2000s and started working in marketing so I have a lot of experience in that sort of writing copywriting content writing articles blogs social media etc um, but then the, the little niggle of, you wanted to create fiction, why are you writing other people's stories, just kept tapping away. Uh, so I did start, about 10 years ago, started entering writing competitions and really exploring what I wanted to do. And horror writing actually just kept coming back. Every time I did a, a competition connected with horror, I did really well in it. And I thought, well, that's telling me something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, you know, back in the day, I was the kid reading all the point horror books and the Stephen King books at yeah. the age of 10 and all of that. Um, but it's also something I'd gone away from because it wasn't socially acceptable. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, the last decade has been me reclaiming my otherness, my interest in the dark side, in the occult. And, uh, and yeah, so this is a perfect merging of my two worlds. I can help out with the marketing, with the social media, the promotion. If you've been following the Ghost Story Festival on Instagram, all the little graphics is me tinkering around on Canva. Mm. Um, But it also led me to be part of the festival. I've run a couple of workshops here and also done the interviews with Emma Stonex about the lamplighters and CJ Cook about her latest, The Ghost Woods. Yes, yes, excellent. Now, we'll talk a little bit about what you're writing uh, uh, and those sorts of things Mm -hmm. in a minute. 
just a quick diversion. You mm-hmm. say you moved to the UK in the mid two thousands. Now, you were saying before we started recording that you lived in the Australian kind of weird crime serial killer capital of the world. Yes. What does that mean? And was that why you moved to the UK? <laughs> I well, I didn't. I wasn't a victim of any of these crimes, so no, it's not. Or the a perpetrator. Or but well, you know that is never been proven. Okay. Uh, but uh, but no. Uh, so I'm from Adelaide in South Australia, and it is known certainly around Australia as the place that the weirdest serial killers and strange violent crimes happen. So for the listeners who might have heard of the Snowtown killings. That was just outside of Adelaide. Um, also, definitely people who are into folklore and mystery will have heard of the Somerton Man. That was in Adelaide in the 1940s. Is there actually, do you think, a reason for that, or is it pure coincidence? It's really interesting. So Adelaide, if you think of the geography of Australia, uh, you've got the West Coast, which is Perth, where so many people in the UK have family that have moved to Perth. Mm. So you've got that's on the West Coast. Then you've got the East Coast, which is the places everyone's heard of. Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, the Gold Coast, all of that sort of thing. Adelaide's in the middle. It's in the middle down the bottom, so it's not even like Darwin and Alice Springs and all of the, you know, the really crazy places. Um, So it's kind of a little bit forgotten. But the history of South Australia is, you know, we are very proud of the fact that we were the only non-convict settlement in Australia. Uh, So there's a little bit of parochialism that goes on over there and... But people who live in Adelaide and especially grew up in Adelaide, I mean, I grew up in Adelaide in the, in the 80s. I was born in the late 70s, so I was very much in the 80s and 90s growing up. And the, the whole state, state went bankrupt, so there wasn't much happening. There was a lot of brain drain going to the east, states going overseas. There, there was just a bit of a really strange atmosphere. Um, and for those who grew up around there, you know, we had some mysterious pedophile rings going on mm. and it was really in the consciousness as well that like this is the place where people just disappear uh, so it's just something that Adelaideans know about mm. uh, and I've actually got one of my good friends back home who started at the newspaper with me at the same time he's a crime reporter and he's written and done podcasts on the true crime of South Australia because it is so strange um, so yeah, if you look up, his name's Sean Fuster. If you look him up, you'll find it probably a lot more detailed than I've, I can give you. I, I do like the irony of the fact that all the strange crime happens in the only non-convict <laughs> settled part of Australia. Yeah, well, it was it was a free settlement. It's also known, ironically, as the city of churches because there was freedom of religion. Um, it is one of the first places in the world. I think New Zealand might have just pipped us one of the first places in the world to give women the vote. Mm. Um, uh, Even when women were given the vote, the Aboriginal population was given the vote, which was unheard of. Uh, So there is a lot of, you know, for a long time, Adelaide was the, well, South Australia was the free state. Mm. Um, But then, as I say, in the sort of 80s, it just dropped down. It became quite conservative. It became quite closeted, quite, you know, something, just something weird in the air. Mm. Um, I mean, we have strange crime going back all the, t- all the way down. You know, like I say, Summerton Man was the 40s. There were children, uh, the Beaumont children went missing, I think, in the 70s, and no one knows what's happened to them. Every few years, there's a new story. Oh, we think the Beaumont children might be buried in this basement somewhere underneath the concrete. So the, you just, all, you're always aware of the strange things that have mm. happened but you're never really sure why. Yeah. And I kind of think it's because it's a bit of the forgotten state. 
Um, mm. Because it's not got the population of the East Coast, it's not got the isolation of the West Coast. You know, Perth is one of the most isolated cities in the world, so it's made its own culture. SA and Adelaide in particular are just kind of there. Gorgeous, really mm. beautiful, but just kind of there, and no, no one really thinks about it. This, this is just triggered a, an interesting thought actually because I, I had an email a couple of days ago from somebody who was asking me if I would like to do an interview with them about the Pennsylvanian Dutch powwow. Mm. Um, so this is essentially ritual magic mm. uh, and folk remedy mm. in the Pennsylvania Dutch tradition. And why it made me think of that, and I think this will be a future episode of the podcast because I think it'll be really interesting, but what it made me think of that is that Pennsylvania was one of those states with mm. the freedom of religious mm. settlement, mm. which led to all of this folk remedy and superstitious magic and ritual curative mm. material coming in and settling and forming this amalgam of, mm. of what is now folklore. Mm. And it sounds like that's a similar sort of thing, actually. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's it, it's a very multicultural, multi-faith mm. kind of place, um, and a lot of that intermingling as well does come up with some really interesting stories from mm. the past. Mm. Um, I mean, my uh, my novel that I've since put aside because I couldn't quite make it work, but I knew it had to be set in South Australia because I wanted to really explore like a folk horror around the role of a woman in her 40s if she's not a mother. And I was like, well, the obvious place to do that is in a really strange enclave in just off what's called the Udna Data Track, mm. which is, it was actually a trade thoroughfare for the Aboriginal tribes. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it was just this really remote place that just felt ripe for folk horror. Mm. Um, you know, more flies than people, that sort of place. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. And the connection to the land as well is so important there too. Yeah, it is. Mm. Okay, let, let's talk about your writing. You say about that novel that you've put aside. Mm. Let's not talk about that one. Uh, let's let's talk about what you are working on. What themes are you working with that you're happy to discuss so with an <laughs> in-development project? It is definitely very early in development, this one. I, I sort of... Over lockdowns, I got in the habit of joining a lot of online lectures. Many mm. of yours were one of them. I was very much a rural Gothic girl. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I attended a lecture about uh, someone who was a, I guess, a spiritual guru in the late Victorian period. And I just got so incensed about the way she was being described. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of focus on her looks. It's like, well, she was fat and ugly, so she must have been you know, actually a cult, because else why else would anyone listen to her? <laughs> and and I felt, and this is, you know, me sounding spooky, I just kept felt, I felt her tapping my shoulder constantly mm. going, this this is bulldust, like, why, why are they yeah, saying yeah. this? This is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and it, I couldn't let it go. So mm. I, I ended up getting a few biographies of this person uh, and, and found out that she was subject to an investigation by the Society for Psychical Research um, in their early days when they were really trying to make their name. This person was in the media a lot. She very much courted media attention. So they thought, oh, we'll use her to look into spiritualism, uh, you know, uh, mysterious appearances. Mm. Is she talking on the astral plane? All of these sorts of things. Um, and there was an investigation into her and she was declared a fraud and it pretty much ruined her life. Um, and she was really unwell and then she died. Um, 
But uh, about 100 years later, the SPR, which is still a going concern mm-hmm. for those who don't know, the SPR reopened the investigation on his 100th birthday and actually found, declared that the investigation was incredibly biased mm-hmm. and it was a missed opportunity. And that, the writer in me just went, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have spent the last year reading up on just various things, not like dedicated time because, you know, I was, you know, going through some health issues and whatever, but this was always at the back of my mind. It's like, oh, there's another thing. Okay, and I just started grabbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and towards the end of last year, I thought, okay, yeah, it's, the t- it's time now. So I've, you know, been working out how I can tell her story mm-hmm. in a way that maintains her enigma and doesn't actually offer any answers. So that is what I'm currently working on. So any plans for this in terms of time scale, do you think? You um, say it's in the early stages of development, the, yeah. which makes that a very difficult question to it answer. It is a very difficult question to ask, but I'm also incredibly impatient. Okay. Um, so, I, and having started my writing career as a journalist, I do tend to write fast. So mm. I know when I'm ready to start, mm. it will come out fast. Right. Uh, it's just a matter of sitting down <laughs> and actually doing that. Um, but I have, uh, I've got a plan. Uh, my, my intention is to write the first draft. I'm going to say here before the end of the summer. Okay. Uh, hold me to it, please. I can, it's recorded It's recorded now. now. It's out there for posterity. But I really want to get this ready this year so I can start querying and, yeah. and getting it out there. Because, like I say, I'm impatient, but she also taps on my shoulder all the mm. time. She's like, why haven't you done this yet? Like, everyone's just out there calling me fat and ugly, and that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential in this story. I, I, I agree. I am already intrigued by, <laughs> by the possibilities of this. So, mm. yes, I shall be contacting you in the summer to make sure that you've reached <laughs> that stage. And if you haven't, I shall want to know why. Okay, so I shall prepared. report, yes. Be prepared. Um, we've heard a lot of material over the course of this weekend mm-hmm. about ghost stories and associated genres mm-hmm. um, from a number of authors and, and other presenters. And it's a genre that's still immensely popular, mm-hmm. I think. And, and I've spoken to a couple of other people over the weekend about this same thing. I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked them, which mm-hmm. is, why do you think that is the case? What is it about the ghost story as a genre that appeals to us? I think there is, there's a lot there, really, and, it, and the ghost story can take many, many forms oh, yeah. as well. So it really depends on what sort of ghost story you're looking at. For me, um, we're all haunted by something. You know, even mm. people who have had the most pleasant lives imaginable have something that haunts them. And I think it's that haunting that the ghost represents, that sort of, maybe that regret, that mistake, that thing you wished you'd done, or that person from your life, that experience that you were trying to get away from but you haven't processed yet. I think that is what really draws us to the ghost story. But also in the more practical sense, I mean, the ghost represents the afterlife. Mm. And death is the biggest fear out there. It is the biggest mystery out there. What happens? And I know, you know, having been involved in a lot of the pre-marketing for, for this festival, the minute you ask anyone about why are we so interested in ghost stories, the first thing they say is, well, it's, it's about life after death, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I think that really is it. You know, it's it's a sort of mystery that's never going to go away, you know, unless some scientist comes along and can prove to us mm. that there is life after death. That's the SPR, we're trying to investigate it in yeah. the Victorian era, we still haven't figured it out. So I think that's really why the ghost story is. And especially you, you find, you know, it's, it's always bubbling away under the surface, but you find 
a real rise in ghost stories and especially gothic when the world goes to a bit of a mess and we have not been in the nicest state of living for the last mm. few years arguably the last few decades mm. you know really um, and so we do start pondering some of those more mysteries of life yeah uh, and yeah I think that's why it's, it's coming back we do and I think the longevity of, of this actually is because it comes down to faith yeah. at the end of the day now um, the beauty of folklore mm. is that we're not interested in that mm. aspect of truth it doesn't matter whether the afterlife exists or doesn't exist to us as folklorists mm. We're more interested in that whole belief system, mm. why people think it does or it doesn't. Now, for anybody who believes that ghosts are spirits of those that have passed on, mm. no amount of scientific proof to the contrary mm. will change that view. Absolutely. But equally, to the scientist who absolutely doesn't believe that that's the case, mm. no amount of evidential experience mm. in terms of other means of showing it mm. will prove the other way as well mm. so I don't think that mystery will ever go away no. one way or the other and I mean I've mentioned the SPR a few times now but I think that's what is so fascinating to me about that period you know I never considered myself a historical novelist mm. but just that period where you've got the rise of science the start of the fall of religion but there was still there was that space in between that liminal space when people had questions that they wanted to put the scientific rigour to, the, the mysteries that you can't really put scientific rigour to. Yeah. And I think it is that space that is just so fascinating to me, for sure. Liminal is a word that's come up a lot over the course of the weekend. Sure. It comes up all the time, of mm. course, in terms of folklore as mm. well. That boundary state is, is really important. So, yeah, mm. you're right. Okay, finally, uh, let's just talk a little bit about recommendations mm -hmm. because... Um, we are at a festival which is predominantly authors, mm -hmm. both presenting and actually a number of the attendees as well mm. are, are writers who are not presenting but are here to network mm. or to hear more from other authors and that. So what's, what's on a recommended reading list in the genre from you at the moment? And that can be modern literature but can equally be... Mm. M.R. James. We'll just get that in there now because it comes up every time, you know, so... <laughs> yeah. You know, historic, historical fiction mm -hmm. or modern fiction. Or, uh, to quote um, Camilla Bruce, who I spoke to earlier on, who works in that genre, speculative fiction, mm. which also fits into that as well. Yeah, and that's what we call it a poetry as well, as a yeah. speculative fiction. Um, I'm going to leave the older stuff because I'm sure you've had a load of recommendations as you say M.R. James, mm. Shirley Jackson, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm going to maybe make some recommendations about uh, uh, writers that have been at this festival. Yeah, good plan. Uh, yeah, so uh, the, it, I, it would be remiss of me not to recommend the, the two women who I interviewed. Emma Stonex as The Lamplighters is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's about, uh, uh, it's actually inspired by a real life disappearance on a, a lighthouse off the coast of Scotland, mm -hmm. uh, but she's brought it to the 1970s. She's looking at a tower lighthouse, which is the ones that are like right out in the middle of the ocean, mm -hmm. just based on a rock, um, where the three, uh, the three lighthousemen disappear, just complete disappearance, a bit of a locked room mystery. 
Um, but she's not only looking at that disappearance, she's also looking at the effect on those who are left behind. Mm. So she's got the wives' points of view in there as well. As, from a writing point of view, it's really interesting in how she's tackled that. She's got lots of multiple points of view, lots of different narrative styles as well. Um, but as a story, it's just absolutely beautiful and gripping. Mm. Uh, so I would say her, I would also recommend the work of C.J. Cook. Um, a couple of her most recent books, The Lighthouse Witches, has just been optioned and has been made for TV. Yeah. Um, so if you like your witches, that's a nice one to go for. That's looking at the Scottish uh, witch trials. Um, but also her most recent one is The Ghost Woods, which again brings in a little bit of um, Scottish folklore, but also looks at... Um, she calls it feminist gothic. It's you know the, the mother and baby homes of mm. the of the twentieth um, century and the impact of that, bringing in some Celtic folklore as well. Uh, and I would also say um, someone who is an absolute powerhouse is Ali Wilkes. She's done quite a lot at the festival. Um, her work in the most recent book, All the White Spaces, is currently on the Stoker long list for best debut novel. Uh, so absolutely worth looking at that. It's an Arctic polar. Um, horror uh, with trans characters so if you're interested in seeing how that uh, that line is is um, held that's a really good one um, but yeah just so many great great writers here I would say look at the Ghost Story Festival website see who's been speaking here and, and any of those are any of them are worth it yeah, yeah, yeah I would absolutely agree uh, and I would say I obviously had the pleasure of interviewing Michelle Paver mm. as, as Saturday's mm. headline act um uh, not an interview that I could record to put out, mm. unfortunately, for, for various reasons, but uh, not Michelle's reasons, just, just mm. general logistics. Um, but Michelle's ghost stories are one, a wonderful read. Again, there's, there's a polar one there as mm. well, so mm. very much this sense of isolation. Uh, but her most recent from well, 2019, I think, wasn't it? Wakenhurst mm. is is one of my favourite reads of this year so far. Mm. It really is a fantastic book and and a proper, um, not only a proper kind of presentation of the Gothic style mm. in, in all of its formats, but it's so full of good folklore as yeah, well. Yeah, So much folklore, so much superstition. Yeah. Um, so many old beliefs, but but not like here is a list of things that I learned. Mm. You know, they are integral to the story and it's and it's a very good story too. So I'd add, certainly add those to yeah. the list. And me. of course, your other interview, Dan Schreiber on Friday night, mm. not a fiction novel necessarily, but if you're into the weird and the wonderful and the strange, absolutely have a look at Dan's work. Oh yes, absolutely. And, li- and do listen to his podcast because No Such Thing as a Fish, which mm. has only had... Like, like we were saying, uh, just a shade over 400 million downloads. Just so only 398 million ahead of this one, you know, but there's, we'll catch up, it's fine. Absolutely. It's yeah, Dan, Dan was great and his, his writing is so entertaining and, and the podcast is just bizarre and mm. fun and well worth listening to. Absolutely. A good list. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank it's you been lovely to talk to you. Great, thanks so much, Mark.